This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content is explicit. It's Monday, September 4th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Brett Kavanaugh hearing began with extended stretches of not hearing from Brett Kavanaugh. It was a bit of a shit show. And I think you're ta- uh, you are taking advantage of my decency and integrity. Okay, sorry, decorum. Decorum is required. It was a poop-stravaganza. Not only were protesters constantly interrupting, the Democratic senators were livid. After getting over 40,000 pages of documents dumped in their laps a few hours before the hearings, Democrats asked for time to, you know, read the documents. Committee Chair Chuck Grassley of Iowa said no, not necessary, and he had a reason why. And maybe the senators haven't read them, but their staff is fully informed because last night before 11 o'clock on the 42,000 pages that have come to our attention, the staff on the Republican side has gone through them. As Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island noted, that would require a reading rate of 7,000 pages an hour. The Democrats continued to ask to adjourn so they could read the documents. They made points about there being a black hole in Kavanaugh's records, and they were firmly rebuked by the chairman. This went on and on, and I'm sure some members in the chamber had to wonder, why does Grassley entertain all these motions? Why doesn't he just shut it down? So Grassley explained... If people wonder why the chair is so patient during this whole process, I have found that it takes longer to argue why you shouldn't do anything than let people argue why they want it. Grassley was confused and overmatched during this part of the proceeding. The protesters were getting under his skin and the Democrats were running circles around him. It was like a debate between the great Greek orator Cicero and a cocker spaniel. But the thing is, the judges didn't speak Greek and gave extra points for wet noses. The hearings will continue. The Republicans have the votes. The Democrats have only their ire to console them. And hopefully, Chuck Grassley will be able to get this all wrapped up by his pre-dusk bedtime. On the show today, I swing open the gates to dispatch with a few scandals. But first... The president repeated claims that white farmers were being murdered at high rates in South Africa. That's not true. But what is true is that the country's grappling with the question of land redistribution, a question that's coming to a contentious, if not murderous, head. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As much as I hate to outsource the role of assignment desk to Donald J. Trump, he did put an international situation on our agenda. I mean, he did so dishonestly, but underneath it, in South Africa, there's a serious issue that I think bears scrutiny. Whites control an overwhelming majority of the arable land in South Africa. Post-apartheid, this was promised to change. It hasn't. There is no widespread campaign of violence against white farmers in South Africa, as Donald Trump, channeling white supremacists, alleges. But let's talk about the actual very thorny situation down there. Joining me is Lindsay Schutel, who covers Southern Africa, all of Southern Africa, from Johannesburg for Quartz. She's a former correspondent for the AP. Hello, Lindsay. How are you? Hi there. How are you doing? I'm well. So how do we uh, actually judge violence and if you could put it in context against the overall violence of the country? Right. So South Africa is well known for its particularly high crime rate and particularly with violent crime. We've had um, deemed the uh, crime capital, particularly Johannesburg, where I am. But crime has seen its slow decrease in South Africa. Farm murders, no, uh, last year, they were about 50 a year. And that's actually a decrease from when they had peaked to about 153 in 1997, 1998 at the height of violence. And the reason farmers feel isolated, as it, you would in any country, is that they live far from urban areas. They're an easy target for crime. And also, South Africa's racial dynamics on farms are particularly pronounced because Quite a bit of racism in some communities still happens. And so what we're seeing is that there is an increased uh, response to farm attacks. Uh, there's, uh, farmers have gotten together, formed their own little security groups, and they've hired private security companies. But if you were to look at the crime stats and who exactly was most affected by crime in South Africa, it's actually young black men right. who uh, usually live in townships and who to a large extent, are vulnerable to gang violence. So that's your big thing. And the other uh, concerning number is the high rates of murder of women who are usually killed by people that they know, etc. So, you know, looking at the crime stats, white farmers, while they are vulnerable, are not the most vulnerable in South Africa. Okay, but what I really want to talk about, and I'm glad we got to discuss that, is there is the issue of redistributing property. And this is a legitimate concern in South Africa. And since the days that apartheid ended, this was always a promise to black South Africans. I think the promise was, I converted it from hectares, but about 60 million acres was promised to be returned from the hands of uh, very wealthy white families to people, 60 million acres. And what's actually been delivered is closer to 10 million acres. So where is that issue now and why is it coming to the fore now? So if you had to look at the issue, it really started about, it came back into the fall last year, where there's a new radical party called the Economic Freedom Fighters, and they're a breakaway of the African National Congress. And um, they were, to be fair, I should say that when they broke away, they didn't break away over ideology. Their leader, Julius Malema, was expelled over ill discipline and um, just saying the most outrageous things. Are these the guys who show up in parliament with orange construction worker hats? Yes. Oh, I love them. To show their solidarity with the work while a luxury watch sticks out from underneath. So yeah, solidarity with the workers. But in the event, their message has been really effective among working class South Africans. And what they've done is that they have zeroed in on the land as an issue because one of the problems with South Africa is that post-apartheid, we are one of the most unequal societies in the world. White people, for example, own the majority of the land and we're three-quarters of the population who are black people. They only owned about... 
10% of urban land and 1% of agricultural land. And of course, because the EFF is able to like really mobilize young South Africans, because South Africa's average population age is about 25, and they're really able to mobilize young South Africans, even if those people don't want to be farmers. Those are the, that's the population demographic that also has the highest unemployment rate. The unemployment sits at about uh, 50% nearly. So if you're mobilizing angry, unemployed young people around the land, then it becomes an issue. And suddenly what happens is the African National Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela, suddenly they seem out of step with people and suddenly they have to keep up with the majority of the country. And so what they do is at their December conference, they say that, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll appoint this moderate businessman uh, who is our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, but with the compromise that he has to bring in the more radical focus on land. And so what does Ramaphosa do? He compromises on the land issue. He promises to make it a priority, especially because we have an election next year. And South Africans don't have to be reminded that Zimbabwe went through a series of expropriations that led to deaths, that cratered the economy, that was used to uh, ensconce for at least a time the uh, Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe. Is that a cautionary tale among most South Africans? Zimbabwe remains a cautionary tale for South Africa constantly, not only because we have a large number of um, Zimbabwean migrants living in the country and who are often warning us that, you know, you should keep an eye on your ruling party. They're beginning to look like ours. But the caveat that uh, Ramaphosa put in was that he said that land redistribution is important, but it cannot take place if it disrupts the agricultural economy or agricultural production in the country. So that is being seen by many as a way to sort of buttress against what happened in Zimbabwe, because in Zimbabwe what you saw was you had veterans who were particularly unhappy with Robert Mugabe at the time because he was simply unable to fulfill his promises while also looting in the country. He said to them, fine, you know, the white people are the problem and therefore you can go over and take over their land, their farms. The other problem with that is the thing that, that a lot of people, I guess, don't remember about that time was that there was an agreement with the British government in which the British government was meant to intervene around payment structures and continued land ownership. The British government reneged on that, and so uh, Zimbabwe's response was to then take over the farms in a particularly violent way. So it was also very much a post-colonial fight, and that's the difference there. So here in South Africa, we've got a different set of circumstances, but Zimbabwe remains a specter in, in the South African imagination, and I think that's why that caveat exists. Is there a chance that the land uh, redistribution plan will be based on confiscation rather than compensation? So that's the thing that they're discussing at this point, where can you take it back without compensation? So that's the, the expropriation without compensation buzz phrase. So some analysts are seeing it as a red herring because the constitution has always allowed for land redistribution, and so why would you now need to expropriate without compensation? The African National Congress has been sitting on this land issue, and they've been functioning on a process of willing buyer, willing seller, but in one case, for example, they got tired of having to discuss what property rights meant and paid one farming family a billion rand. So that shows that they, they themselves weren't exactly sure what they were doing with the land issue. Well... I think that the ANC has been beset by a lot of corruption and mismanagement, examples of corruption and mismanagement. And it doesn't surprise me that this issue would uh, adhere to that also. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And we've had like a black hole for the last 10 years, to be honest with you. Uh, the Zuma years, we're just now beginning to reckon with how much uh, was lost institutionally, economically. So, you know, during those last 10 years, the land, was, the land issue was not the only one that was shelved for looting. 
Yeah. What people and we, state capture. And we should say a billion rand is $65 million? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so if it's a red herring because, of course, the owners will be compensated, but then there's the thorny issue of how much compensation. South Africa is not a poor country. It's in the G20, but it's not exactly a rich country with a lot of extra money sloshing around. Where are they going to get the money to compensate uh, enough farmers and landowners so that the land can be redistributed? And are there any kind of forward-looking, clever plans to include, say, in the international community or even the United States, who seems uh, at the moment very, very concerned with this problem? Uh, I'm shaking my head because, quite frankly, there is no there is no clever plan. South Africa, just in the last, so we went into recession today, and um, oh, congratulations. Te- technic- yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the point of that argument is that with the technical decision today, it just shows you that South Africa's economy has a long way to go, despite the fact that we're in the G20 and despite the fact that we're technically a middle-income country. We may be a middle-income country in certain parts of Johannesburg, certain parts of Cape Town, or on certain farms, but for the vast majority of the country, you've got uh, nearly 60% of the population, I'm open to correction, uh, living below the poverty line. And so what you have is that you have these two economies happening constantly, and what you're seeing now is that those economies are rubbing up against each other, and they've they're chafing up against each other about um, how to really fix the country in a way that is both pro-poor but also doesn't um, shoot South Africa in the foot uh, as it participates in the free market and international trade. So, for example, we're seeing the public service discussing the fact that they may have to lay thousands of people off because they simply don't have the money and they're bloated, they're no longer an efficient system. So a country that has to lay off thousands of uh, public servants, that's not a country that can pay out farmers, to be completely honest with you. And even as this discussion continues, we're not seeing any clever plans from the government just yet about how exactly they're going to work this out. Lindsay Schutel covers Southern Africa from the base of Johannesburg. Lindsay, thank you for helping us drill down on this topic. And you may have heard the drilling in the background there in Johannesburg. <laughs> Let's hope that's contributing to the economy. Thank you. God, I hope so. Thank you. And now the spiel. They say when life closes a door, it opens a window. They being the molding and millwork industries, I think. Still, I I have noticed that when life serves up a three-day weekend, it also often opens a gate, meaning a scandal. A nice Labor Day weekend mini-scandal. What used to be tagged with the suffix gate. Have you noticed that under the perma-scandal Trump administration, we have basically dispensed with gates? Well, there's former Manafort Deputy Rick Gates, the special counsel dispensed with him, but we used to name all our scandals Gates. Listening to Slow Burn, I was reminded of Travelgate and Filegate. The New England Patriots had Spygate and New Jersey had Bridgegate. But no more Gates under Trump. Just the less fun and bouncy Emoluments Clause and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Anyway, There are actually some nice, digestible scandals over the last three days, and I am here to help you digest them. The New Yorker invited Steve Bannon to speak at its festival, and then it disinvited him. This is either being called Bannon Gate or New Yorker Gate. I prefer the Remnick Reneg or the Bannon Boondoggle. But whatever you call it, I will now offer the pithiest way to think about it, and then let us never refer to it again. Here we go. 
The New Yorker is a journalistic institution. Its purpose is to inform, and as such, The New Yorker should interview Steve Bannon. The New Yorker Festival is a cultural institution. Its purpose is to instill a warm feeling of erudition within its attendees and therefore probably should not invite Steve Bannon. Editor David Remnick made the wrong call at first, thought about it, then got it right. Let's move on. Next is Zito Gate. Selena Zito is a kind of a journalist whose shtick was rewarded in 2016. So for a long time, she has been reporting on the real people of the real state of Pennsylvania, consistently finding they are really fed up with the status quo. She also helped us see Donald Trump as a person who the real people take seriously, but not literally, which seems like a clever construction until you reach second uh, eight or second nine of having pondered it. Zito Gate concerns the real people who she quotes in her book. Zito held them out as longtime Democrats or Obama fans who were newly turned off to the Democratic Party and therefore turned on to the charms of Donald Trump. The only thing is that at least half a dozen of these figures were actually Republican officials, sometimes decades-long elected Republican officials, who she was pretending to be just Joe and Jane dirt-under-fingernails machinists. It shows that Selena Zito is a little dishonest or a little lazy or a little of both. She was exposed on Twitter, but CBS still saw fit to have her on this weekend. It so valued the sage insight that Selena Zito provides into the real people. Face the Nation host Margaret Brennan did give Zito a chance to respond to the allegations, shouldn't say allegations, the facts, the documentation that so many of the uh, people she quotes have long histories in the Republican Party, even though they're supposed to be newly minted Republicans. So here's what Zito said. Uh, It it all began uh, through a series of uh, tweets by an anonymous troll. And as the the internet goes, it just expands and expands and expands. Uh, I... uh, addressed with the questions that were asked uh, to Ashley. And also, I put my own personal tweet out there um, addressing each, each issue that this anonymous person did. Well, yes, it may have started with an internet troll, definition of troll being people who cause Selena Zito discomfort. But it was amply documented by many, many journalists, chief among them Ashley Feinberg of HuffPo. Did it expand and expand? It did. Because of the internet? Well, insofar as the internet was the repository of the documentation that showed Selena Zito to be dishonest, sure, I guess you could blame the internet, but had people, not the real people, but journalist-type people, taken those words that eventually wound up on the internet and wrote them on parchment and set them adrift in a bottle, she'd still be dishonest and lazy. I have no idea why CBS had Selena Zito on and then allowed her to be the one who got to define the nature of her dishonesty which she did dishonestly. But anyway, don't listen to me. This is a podcast. You can't trust podcasts. They expand and expand. So that was a real gate, that Zito gate. But do you recall the greatest gate of them all? Perhaps you heard about it. The news out of Newark, New Jersey. Fox 5 was on the scene. Popular hip-hop artists like A Boogie with That Hoodie, PNB Rock, Funk Master Flex, and others were supposed to take the stage. Instead, A Boogie with That Hoodie was asked not to boogie on that day. Reporter Jessica Formosa had more. 1,200 tickets were bought, but last night, Dexter Thomas, the promoter and organizer of the concert, says he got a call from Newark police saying the concert had to be canceled because someone threatened to shoot and kill a boogie with the hoodie and fans. They said they would shoot up a boogie with the hoodie, and just to get to him, they would shoot up the entire venue. 
A venue with the death threat is a tense situation to be sure, but the concert's promoter was not having it. I don't understand that. I mean, these rappers, they get threatened every day. True dat. And Fox 5 then put a button on the incident. And Fox 5 reached out to the manager of that rapper, A Boogie with the hoodie. So far, we have not heard back. Authorities later claiming they were specifically concerned about local narcotics traffickers staging a drive-by, or as they call it, a druggie with a buggy. Though others claim these so-called drug dealers were merely recreational users of small amounts of marijuana. A newbie with a doobie. It's rap. It's all, this is all about rap and fear of rap, isn't it? Fear of hip-hop. Fear of a black planet. And it's why the back-to-school hip-hop show needs to rebrand as the New Yorker Festival. An erudite talk with the president's legal counsel paired with celebrity chef David Chang? That sounds highbrow. No one could object to that. But were you to call it a Rudy with a foodie? Oh, look out. Seems dangerous. Lawrence Wright. He writes for the New Yorker. He wrote The Looming Tower. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that work. But had he named that book, not The Looming Tower, but A Jihadi Who's a Saudi, then yes, it brings about a frisson of danger, does it not? And I'm sure at the New Yorker Festival, a talk with Gwyneth Paltrow would just sell out, especially if she were to discuss how fecal transplants improve the gut biome. But if you rename that thing, A Snooty Beauty Replaces Duty, that'll get shut down by city, state, and federal authorities, to say nothing of the Board of Health. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader spent the day producing the gist and also feeding Chewbacca Oreos a Wookiee with the cookie. As a kid, Steve Lichtai, who is now executive producer of Slate Podcast, used to inhale his Charles Schultz peanuts-scented markers on any given afternoon. He'd get loopy with the Snoopy for hours on end. The gist, we are reinventing the card catalog as we know it. I call hooey on John Dewey. Decimals are screwy. Oom-peru-de-peru-de-peru. And thanks for listening.